Hello and welcome to the Anthems Podcast. I'm Patrick, and I'm here to tell you the story of a song that helps to tell the story of a nation. Today, we will be making the first push into Asia proper. Technically speaking, yes, we have been here before when you heard about Russia, since it is a transcontinental nation, but despite most of its land being in Asia, most of its population is in Europe, so I'm going to concur with the UN that it is a European nation. Today's leap across the planet is roughly 9,085 kilometers, or like 5,600 miles, and is only about 500 kilometers less than the last jump that we made. To make the world seem even smaller, I will alert you to the fact that on fiber optics, this is a 45 millisecond transmission at 75% of light speed proper. Today's anthem is brought to you via an old friend of mine and Sasha Baron Cohen, who is a person I have never met. My friend was interested in learning some real stuff about Kazakhstan instead of the nonsense in the movie Borat. But I do think that the movie serves a purpose. It's satire, first of all, and Cohen has developed a strong streak of playing exaggerated depictions of things to draw out and trap and troll hateful, bigoted people. Plus, it's a particular kind of stupid funny that appeals to my inner 12-year-old boy. That said, it's definitely full of a bunch of unchecked, nonsense and misinformation, and is not an accurate representation of the Kazakhstani people, and one does not automatically go and learn about the place after seeing a film lampooning it. Until I started this show, there was essentially no chance that I'd have learned anything at all about the country. But all that means, I get to tell you about Menik Kazakhstanum, or in English, my Kazakhstan. And hopefully I'll tell you something interesting about the people that are the namesake of the country. The Kazakh people are yet another thing that I could do an entire other podcast about that would never fully flesh out the depth of that culture. The finiteness of my time here is an ever-frustrating thing, folks. Uh, the name Kazakh first started being used by the people living in the region sometime in the 14th century, but the origins of the term are kind of a fuzzy data point in etymology. The origins of the people, though, are much clearer, and involved the rise of a Kazakh state that was the successor to the Golden Horde. But that's a far different story than what we're going to be discussing. Enough with the potential spoilers. Hopefully, me not letting you know what I'm doing ahead of the release has kept you from reading ahead. Making it impossible, hopefully. Unless I'm creating fans of the National Anthem genre, and there are people out there deep-diving National Anthem history because of this show. That would be fun. Unlikely, but fun. Maybe those folks will do their homework better than the people that played the parody of Manik Kazakhstanum from Borat at the International Shooting Grand Prix in Kuwait. The stone-faced look on Maria Dmitrienko's face during the song is honestly kind of heartbreaking. But they did have the ceremony again after the team complained, and this time they played the official version of the following anthem that you are going to hear roughly two minutes of. Oh, oh. 
my initial reaction to this is honestly to reevaluate what I'm going to use on the show because it was kind of an awesome performance. And I listen to a lot of different versions of an anthem before I decide what gets played. Like a lot, a lot of them. And I even try to work them out on my ukulele or guitar most of the time. I try to play the literal official version of the anthem, but that might not always be the best way because you heard that song too, and it is on my playlist now. Our trip jumps us to a country that is, despite what I said earlier, so whoops, a country that is at least a little geographically similar to Russia in that it also straddles the Ural River, which I just learned is considered the dividing line between Europe and Asia if we are to believe ChatGPT on November 21st of 2023, the algorithm says that approximately 23% of the country is west of the Ural. So in land and in population distribution, it is considered a Central Asian country. But none of that told you where the largest landlocked country in the world is, did it? At 1 million square kilometers, or 2.7 million square miles, Kazakhstan is quite big. In fact, it is roughly the size of Western Europe, and not just the largest landlocked country, but also the ninth overall. It butts up on some of the other biggest ones out there as well, with the northern and western border being Russia and the Caspian Sea on the western side, which is another really cool body of water that I spent way too much time reading about. Often called the world's largest lake, my new geology term for this episode is it's an endoheric body of water. It's E-N-D-O-R-H-E-I-C, so maybe endoric or something. But it means that it does not drain into an ocean, and instead it drains into swamps and smaller lakes and ultimately is lost mostly through evaporation and human usage. Interesting. So the eastern border of Kazakhstan is China, and the southern border is mostly Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. There's a little bit of Turkmenistan, about 230 miles or so, right before the Caspian Sea on the west. So, for my fellow Americans, it's the big country right in between Europe and Asia. With Kazakhstan, we are again encountering a country that used to be a part of the Soviet Union. There were one of the last to get out when the USSR fell apart. So that's where we're headed, but it's not where I'm going to begin the story. We're going to start when the Russian Empire decided to integrate the Kazakh steppe in the 1820s and disrupt what up until then had been a Katani filling in the power vacuum that the Golden Horde left at the feet of the largely nomadic herding people that lived on the steppe. The Katani lasted nearly 400 years, which was well long enough for a rich and distinct cultural identity to take root for these folks. But in the 1700s, the Russians started claiming territory, and the, the Katnate did nothing because they were distracted by another foe, and in fact, they asked the Russian Empire for help with this foe. They were told, sure, and instead of helping with that war... The Russians did what they seemed to do over and over in history and just sort of took the region over. In the period between 1822 and 1848, the Katanate was mostly conquered and filled with Russian forts. This led to an increase in the immigrant population and a squeezing of the grazing land that f heavily favored the Russian farmers supporting the forts more than the Kazakhs feeding their families and herds. 
As it does, the occupation resulted in a vigorous armed resistance. The Russian response was to pass an 1860 resolution that allowed the country to annex problematic neighbors, and they promptly annexed the rest of Central Asia. More on that in a future episode. For the next 60 years or so, the traditional Kazakh lifestyle continued to be eroded away at through the vast increases in Russian farmland. But then, in 1920, the Russian Empire fell to the Bolsheviks, and the just-getting-started democratic political system in the country was promptly banned. Over the course of the next decade, the communists shaped the region, and by 1930, I'm guessing because it's gigantic and administratively difficult to incorporate into the much larger Russian Federation Soviet Socialist Republic, or the Russian SSR, Kazakh was spun off and made into the Kazakhstan SSR. This earned it the designation of the second largest member of the USSR. Over the next decade, Kazakhstan was subject to two broadly horrible things that I could leave out, but history can't be a highlight reel or we learn nothing, and this stuff shapes the personality of the people who are involved in the history that we're talking about. The first event is the Asharshalik. It's a famine so bad that it has a name. It killed 1.5 million people, of which 1.3 million were ethnic Kazakh. It was mostly caused by the Russian Empire squeezing out the grazing land in the steppe. And then, in a bad weather year, the nomadic herders had nowhere to go to sustain their animals by actually being nomadic. And then there were the gulags of the 1930s, but we can just call them concentration camps because that is a clearer term about what they were. There were 11 of them in Kazakhstan, and you get no details on this podcast because some horrible things are in fact off limits on this show. All we really need to know is that halfway through this decade, our poet and composer were born into a country where millions of people were starving and being imprisoned in indescribable conditions because of the government. The younger of the two men is our poet, Zhumaken Saburuli Najimendenov. He was born in 1935 in the western Kermengazi district, mostly raised by his paternal grandfather. Zhumaken was fed a steady diet of old-school Kazakh values, history, pride, and tales of famous ancestors. When he wrote the song in 1956, he was a 21-year-old student at the Kazakh State Conservatory, and when he graduated in 1959, our poet was already a well-known man in the country. Writing a popular patriotic song can do that. Jumakin was, at various points in his life, an editor at a publishing house, the head of a newspaper, Lenin's Youth, a literary consultant for the Kazakh Writers' Union, a government typography editor, and the head of a publishing department. Uh, that one was less clear about where. He also put out two collections of poetry in the 1960s and three novels in the 1970s. An impressive output, but a trajectory that was cut really short in November of 1983 when he passed at the age of 48, which I consider far too young since I am 41. There were 10 posthumous anthologies of his writing on a wide variety of topics, and he is fortunate enough to be considered an influential author to this day. Now we will catch up the composer. Shamshi Keldayakov was born in 1937, although he was maybe named Jamshid Danbayev, 
but not a lot of information that makes sense in a coherent way exists about this guy. What I can be reasonably sure of is that he was born in 1937. At some point, he ran away from home or school, which required a name change. Uh, he played the mandolin. He wrote music in a waltz style. And in 1955, he attended the same conservatory as the poet that he wrote Menin Kazakhstanum with. The rest of his timeline isn't clear because the sources are mostly in direct conflict with each other. Some of them insist that he learned music and composition when he was very young from his blacksmith's father's dumbra playing and his mother's talented singing. Other sources say that he ran away when he was young and drove a tractor because 1940s Kazakhstan was not a great place to be a musician. That's almost certainly not true because in 1944, at the end of the war, he was seven. Uh, unless his birth year is wrong, too. Some of the info says that he went to a veterinary college and was conscripted as a technician in the Aktobi region of the country. He grew tired of that and at 17 began playing music and found his real calling at the conservatory. So, honestly, all I can say about this guy is who knows about most of his backstory. But it's been fun to explore. What we can say for sure is that he did write a bunch of music over the course of his life, and he became an honored part of Kazakhstani culture, even being considered the father of the Kazakh waltz. He lived to see the fall of the Soviet Union and to hear his song played in the streets by defiant youth during that fall. Unfortunately, the last year of his life was spent in the slow decline of an unspecified illness, and he died on the 29th of February in 1992 at 55. Also too young. The only other piece of information I have about him is that he had a son, and uh, we'll hear a little bit more about him later. So, a talented poet and a talented writer met at a conservatory and kicked off their careers with what is probably the most popular song either one of them ended up writing. But a super popular patriotic song generally has a point, and since I'm mentioning it, you've probably guessed that this one does too. By the end of the 1950s, the USSR was in the de-Stalinization period of Nikita Khrushchev, or excuse me, Nikita Khrushchev. Part of that period was a series of domestic policy debacles, especially in agriculture, with a particularly large failure happening in Kazakhstan. In 1953, despite opposition from the Kazakhstani Communist Party, officials that they didn't want Russia controlling a big chunk of their country, the Virgin Lands campaign was launched. There were pretty massive food shortages in the Soviet Union, and this was an epic-sized farming expansion to try and alleviate and stabilize the food supply. As a short-term solution, it did actually make some gains toward, it, toward its goals, but by the end of the decade, it was considered a complete disaster. What it also did, though, was make the destruction of the nomadic life of a herder on the Kazakh steppe seem like it was the goal. They badly deepened the divisions that were begun by the Russian Empire and shrank the available grazing lands even further. That is the chain of events that inspired the patriotic song that became the anthem of Kazakhstan. There is some discussion about whether the anthem was in support or in opposition of that program, but we will talk about that after we get to the lyrics. We have the anthem, but as is sometimes the case, we have a time gap between the complete song and the song becoming the anthem. I mean, it's 50 years, so historically speaking, it's not really that long, 
but a lot of stuff happens in the last half of the 20th century in the USSR. Though most of the rest of the 20th century, the USSR tried hard to make Kazakhstan an industrial center when coal and oil were found there. This left the country with a mixed legacy when the Soviet Union disintegrated some 36 or so years later. About half of the country's citizens were ethnically Russian, and they were not meshing well with the existent society since they were basically forced there by the USSR. Uh, Post-collapse Kazakhstan was also left with an oil and gas industrial apparatus, which was inefficiently supported by the infrastructure because it was not great infrastructure. Generally, though, post-1991, the country followed a pretty distinct pattern. Declare independence from the Soviet apparatus. Maintain the existing power structure. Pretty exactly. Mostly the same people, too. One person arises to power and then spends the rest of their life consolidating that power. Here, our fairly immediate dictator was a guy named Nursultan Nazarbayev, and I bet he swears that he was democratically elected. The president remained in power until 2019, and he is still alive as far as I know. For our purposes, the most important thing this man did was, as part of his efforts to further distance the administration from communism, replace the Soviet anthem. The president chose many Kazakhstanum with reworked lyrics, we'll put a pin in that too, and became the technical co-author of his country's anthem in an almost comically dictatorial fashion. So we now have the anthem, and we can talk about the song itself. Musically speaking, the anthem fits a pattern in a lot of ways. We have a strong, powerful even, an uplifting melody coupled with a fairly straightforward and consonant harmony. That's anthemesque stuff, and it helps the song convey a sense of pride, national identity, stability, and unity throughout the piece. It's officially in the key of C, and played at the stately pace of something like 84 beats per minute. So, like a slightly excited andantino, if you have a conveniently labeled metronome directly in front of you. At any rate, it manages to dodge the lack of, I don't know, like muchness that slower marches have for me most of the time. This one sounds quite good. As far as the lyrics go, the anthem follows verse-chorus-verse-chorus format. The original 1956 song was two verses, and the 2006 reimagining the president had for the anthem contains three. Discussing this song, I'll read out the original first, and then if the official is different, I'll read the version, and then I'll discuss them in that context. Just like episode 3, North Macedonia. I will read through in English because my Kazakh is non-existent. The original first verse. Sun of gold in the sky, grain of gold in the steppe. Let us all celebrate. Let us look at the steppe. How spacious is this land. Flowers bloom on the ground. Grains are with toil sowed. My Kazakhs are intrepid. The current. Sky of golden sun, step of golden seed, legend of courage. Take a look at my country. From the antiquity, our heroic glory emerged. They did not give up their pride. My Kazakh people are strong. Strong and topic-appropriate verses, with some telling similarities and differences. The original is high praise for the Kazakh people and their beloved step. A large and beautiful homeland, with flowers and sun, plus the grain. 
Recall that the original song was written in response to the Virgin Lands campaign, wherein Russia tried to convert Kazakhstan into a breadbasket for the USSR. Several of the sources say there is some debate over it being a song in support or opposition of the program. More on that will follow as we learn more of this tune. As far as the version that the president reimagined, well, the tone's a bit different, isn't it? There is still the recognition of the people in the land, but in the country that this song was in, we've got a Kazakh president that essentially has unilateral power, so he is trying to rewrite a popular patriotic song to further cement his legacy and control of the country. To me, it feels far more deliberate in its assertions about the way people should feel than the less prescriptive original. The original chorus, My motherland, my motherland, as thy song I shall stream from thee, as thy flower I shall bloom, O homeland, my native homeland, my Kazakhstan. And the current one, My country, my country, as your flower I will be planted, as your song I will stream, my country my native land, my Kazakhstan. Again, a striking difference in tone and intention. At least the intention part is there for me. In the original, we get motherland, and that implies nurturing and the people arising from the country. The verse continues with the theme of coming from the country. And then the official version of the refrain is rife with personal possession with the particularly telling change of my motherland to my country. Nurselton was not subtle. A note. When I read these songs, I try to find different translations, because there are different ways to translate things, and the words that people or AI pick to do that matter when I'm trying to interpret what the original author meant. So, the translation that I'm using is one, or sometimes a synthesis, of a few that I feel conveys the meanings and feeling of the anthem that I'm talking about based on all the reading that I've managed to do on the song. On to the original second verse. When around I glance, my heart with love filleth. On this day I conform. Behold my noble folk. Our country, a vast land. Our banners are raised. In the wind they swayed. In the end I rejoiced. The current... The way was opened to the descendants. By the vast land I have, its unity is proper. I have an independent country. It welcomed the tests of time. Like an eternal friend, our country is blessed. It's in our hands. Let's be honest. These are just straight-up different songs. The, the verse and intention is completely different. Jumakin's original poetry is high praise for the people and the country. He loves the people that he sees, and he just wants to be part of it. This is where I can understand some of the debate about whether or not this song was for or against the Soviet efforts. He refers obliquely to the steppe again, and nearly explicitly to the resistance against dividing it for farming. But rejoice in the end? Eh, probably not, one would think. Because the Russians definitely got their way, even if it was a fairly complete failure, and the Kazakhstani people suffered an awful lot because of it. The official anthem is, again, quite different, and it has an explicitly nationalistic tone that one would expect from a not-quite-authoritarian country's national anthem. That said, it's not really 
that far off the mark for a national anthem, because, yeah, as I have said before, it's a pretty nationalistic thing. The land provided a path for the people to fashion a country that is unified and independent of the rest, an ancient country blessed by God and given to the people to steer by their own hand, so very much in the wheelhouse of anthems. We then hear the refrain again, and we go on to the original third verse. There is no third verse in the official version of the anthem. There is a looming step. There is a placid bounty. Oh, look and gratify. I have such a country of new eras welcomed like an old age friend. Blessed is our country. This is our country. Here is where I hear the song become defiant and make it ring true that an interview with the composer's son, Mukhtar, hit the table in disgust and is quoted, Imagine if someone came and tried to break up London, he said. It's just like that. My father composed the song to stop them doing this. Don't do it. This is our land. They know this is a great place, and it's exactly what the Soviets are looking for. Obviously, I'll allow for debate on this because I'm nothing approaching a scholar of history, and judgment about history based solely on authority is probably a mistake, but I'm on the side of the sun, and I agree that this is an anti-come-here-and-farm-all-our-land song. This is followed again by the refrain one last time, and we come to the end of a song that was a de facto anthem, and then was changed to something almost completely different before being made into an official anthem. It turned out to be an interesting trip, I think, and it reminded me again that not only are we seeing snippets of the decolonization of European powers, but we also get to see empire crumbling, whether it's the Russian Empire or the USSR. Either way, I learned a whole bunch of stuff again, and I hope that you did too, because that's kind of my entire thing here. So we cut to the credits. The writing, recording, and production for the show are done by me, and I also wrote and played the intro slash outro music. The music was used with my permission. Unless otherwise noted, the anthems I play are public domain or some other equivalently free-to-get license. My sources, and this time that is it, are contained in the show notes. The most direct way to get to those show notes is at anthemspodcast.com. You can find me on Facebook and WhatsApp as the Anthems Podcast. And for now, I try to get the episodes shared on whatever platform I can with the hashtag AnthemsPod. This is mostly because I have no desire to join them all. You can email me corrections, comments, concerns, ideas, instructions on how to do awesome things, and even ask me questions at anthemspod at gmail.com. For better or for worse, I've made it possible to leave me a voicemail at plus one two zero three seven five nine eight three seven five, or better still, leave me a review wherever you can so that I can find out what you think. And reviews also super matter from what I hear. Now, give me a rating, maybe, even a good one, on your podcast collection app, or just recommend this show to another human being, so maybe they'll do all that. But whatever you do, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you listen to some more of it. Bye-bye.